Today on the LA Food Podcast, I'm your host, Lucas Servodio, basking in the glow of not being at Coachella for the first time in years. Ah, the sweet comfort of air conditioning, eating whatever I want, and not being forced to elbow tweens to get a good standing position for Harry Styles. That said, I am joined by co-host Father Saul to discuss the merits of music festival food, and we also discuss other hot headlines in the food world, including the controversy around the opening of Salt and Straw's Silver Lake location, and whether restaurant NFTs are actually a good idea. We'll also give you a quick update on how our fantasy Top Chef is going, and spoiler alert, it's not looking great for your boy. Oh man, what can you do? Well, without further ado, let's chow down. It's another week on the LA Food Pod, and uh, we have our recurring guest here, our co-host, our favorite co-host. It's Father Saul, the artist formerly known as Cousin Saul. Saul, how are you doing today? I'm doing well, man. I appreciate the uh, promotion to Father. I feel like it's only right, given my role in your wedding and general life. Uh, yeah, no, man. Yeah. It's, it, it feels good. It feels good to be here. The father I never had, uh, <laughs> truly. Well, welcome to L.A. Now, a lot, a lot of people know this, but you don't actually live in L.A., which makes you uniquely qualified to be the co-host of an L.A. food podcast. But this this recording, you actually happen to be in L.A. How are you? How are you liking our city of angels? Oh man, I, I am just so happy to be back here, man. It's such a it's such a beautiful, magical place. The sun is out. The vibes are right. And it, it is too funny, especially being here for the first time recording a podcast with you, that I live in Seattle and co-host, co-host in quotes, the L.A. Food Pod. I had a friend text me last night like, oh, I'm going to this great L.A. restaurant. It's called Horses in Hollywood. And I'm like, never even heard of that. And they were like, Luca, <laughs> Luca should fire you. And I was like, I don't know. I, I did not understand, yeah. man. <laughs> I, uh... I look, we'll scrub that part out of the podcast because we don't want our listeners hearing that. I think though, I thought about this a lot. And I think what you offer the podcast is objectivity. You know, I think there could be a lot of like raw, raw that's happening. If, if we were both kind of LA boosters that were hosting this podcast, I think it's good that one of us is a bit more of an objective perspective. And then when you come into town, you are going to get like an enhanced education every time. Now, listeners, it's not like he's never been to LA. He used to live here and he's eaten here a lot. And he comes what, six, seven, ten times a year sometimes? Yeah. So you're not like you're not like a complete stranger to the food scene. But I'm really excited because this week, this weekend, I should say, we've got quite the food crawl planned for you. I, I'm really excited. And you're exactly right. I feel like me having lived in LA and then now being in Seattle, when I come into town, I have that clear eye, right? I have the objective point of view. Yeah. I'm not caught up in the hype. I'm not I'm not like all all up on the Instagram accounts in the city and so on and so forth. But when I do come to yeah. town, you got to educate me. And tomorrow I'm yeah. very excited for a deep education about some exciting stuff happening, particularly on the West side of the city. Yeah. Well, we're, we're going to save this for next week's pod we'll, where we will recap the food crawl for our listeners and we can go place by place and let them know what we really thought of all these spots. But I've essentially planned an awesome itinerary that covers Saturday, Sunday, and a little bit of Tuesday uh, for Father Saul to really sink his teeth into what the culinary landscape of Los Angeles looks like today. We're going to be starting on the west side and working our way back east on Saturday. Yeah. And then on Sunday, we're basically just hitting up a couple new hotspots. Um, and on Tuesday, we're hitting up what I think 
is the quintessential experience for Los Angeles culinary luminaries right now. I'm not going to say what it is. I'm not going to say what it is. We'll keep it as a surprise. But needless to say, listener, you're in for a treat next week when we recap. My question for you, Saul, is are you stocked up on Tums? I I actually literally am. (laughs) I landed with a little bit of heartburn and picked it up. I'm going to show you right now. Got got a whole stack. Got a whole stack right here. My body is ready. If my body isn't ready, my supplements are ready. I can't wait, man. Let's see what what the city has going on. It's got a lot. It's got a lot. Well, we've got a lot of, to cover today, actually. Speaking of a lot, um, we're going to start today with going through some of the news of the day and some of the hot topics. And then, of course, we'll get to our favorite, the Top Chef recap. But first, I wanted to pick your brain on something that's been a bit of a conversation here in Los Angeles the past couple of weeks. It actually has to do with one of our former stomping grounds or adjacent stomping grounds, Silver Lake. A salt and straw opened. Um, it's in the space that was formerly, I, I believe, a place called Forage, which was like one of those like sort of like vegan delis where you could go and get like a bunch of like overpriced salad sides. Um, it's now a salt and straw. And on its face, you know, a new salt and straw, it's just a sign of the times. You know, we've got a Starbucks in Echo Park now. We've got a Habit. We've got a, you know, uh, a, a shoe palace all these signs of, of, of late stage gentrification and capitalism. But the reason this salt and straw has called has caused a, a stir is that it's opening literally two or three doors down from a gelato spot cup called Pazzo Gelato that's been there for 17 years. And people are up in arms in this. I'm curious, what do you think about this? Uh, it, it's, it's exactly like you said, man, late stage gentrification. And it's I think it's sad to see because a question you posed to me was, is the eventual victory of salt and straw inevitable? I think the mm-hmm. answer might be yes, man. And, and, and it's like, a this is a sign of the Santa Monification of Silver Lake and Echo Park, as you alluded to. And um, I, I think it's sad to see. Now, my hope, my hope is that, you know, longtime residents, neighborhood stalwarts will continue to, um, uh, patronize Pazzo Gelato and keep it going. But I'm worried as time passes and the neighborhood turns over and new folks move in and they see the name Salt and Straw and they know it and they don't know Pazzo Gelato, they, they might they might just be in trouble, the local neighborhood spot. And that's yeah. that's a shame to see, man. It's a shame to see and I'm and I'm concerned about it. I will say there are some examples and they don't happen often where a chain opens in a neighborhood and they open there because they think that there's going to be a good reception. There's a, there's an audience for it and people actually don't take to it. And here's a couple places where that has happened. It's happened in Westwood. Um, I know that in Westwood chains love to open up there because uh, there's UCLA, lots of students, college students. So for example, like Ike's sandwiches opened up there. Um, And it, it lasted a couple of years and then shuttered. Whereas more places that are kind of like, you know, more mainstays of the community, like Diddy Reese's and whatnot, continue to thrive. So I do think there's something to be said for in some neighborhoods, some places can outlive the salt and straws of the world. It's an interesting example. And, and I do think it's, I, I think it's not impossible for Pazzo to survive this, but 
what what's funny is the same reason that Ike's goes to Westwood and other chains go to Westwood for students is actually I think the same reason they eventually lose out because while students turn over quite quickly, I think when you go to a place like UCLA, there's uh, the local spots become storied, right? Like seniors yeah. down to freshmen pass on like, yo, this is the spot. This is the spot. This is where we go for a late night uh, after uh, a drunk night out. Here's where we go for, for brunch the next morning. And that allows like a, a consistent sort of lore around those places to survive. Whereas I think yeah. in, in just a straight up neighborhood that doesn't necessarily have that institution of staying power, there could be higher risk. So, I mean, look, we'll see. I mean, going back to Echo Park right across from Mohawk Bend and seeing a Habit Burger, Starbucks, yeah. Chipotle, Chipotle too, I think. Chipotle, yeah, Chipotle. Yeah. It, it broke my heart, man. And, and look, obviously Mohawk Bend is still there, hopefully not going anywhere. But you just like look at it and you're like, man, you know, it, it's 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 the you know commodification almost of these neighborhoods, which are really special. And of course, yeah. we should point out we might be you know semi responsible for drawing such chains in, given our uh, given our moving into the neighborhoods and being the target audience for them, and and that shouldn't be forgotten. But you know, we don't want them. We don't want them. But bro, I I, I resent that, and here's why: Ooh. we are not that type of gentrification. We are a type of gentrification. So we're the type of gentrification that brings in places like Trencher, that brings in places like Ostrich Farm, that bring, you know, those donut friends. Patronizes places because they were already there. Patronizes, yeah, yeah. Well, no, but some places opened up while we were there. For Mm. example, like Donut Friend, the vegan donut spot, caused quite a stir when it opened in, uh, in Silver Lake right next to another donut shop that had been there for ages. And look, I take full responsibility for that type of type of gentrification because I am the consumer for places like Donut Friend, for Trencher, for Ostrich Farm. I am not the consumer for places like Chipotle, The Habit, even Starbucks. So I'm not sure who's who, who that is for. And I think that's speaking to the fact that we are entering an entire new phase of gentrification in these neighborhoods. I, I think I think you're right in terms of like the level of gentrification. I think we're talking about layers of evil here, <laughs> right? No, no, like, I'm not saying, I'm yeah. not saying like we're, we're we're the good gentrifiers. Absolutely right. not. I'm not saying that. But what I am saying is like this is an evolution that's mm-hmm. happening. Yeah, yeah, sure, sure. And, and and look, something that you know gentrifiers should be aware of. And you know, I'm I'm curious about like what like local public policy looks like, or if there's any cities in the country that have like try to protect local establishments and, and, you know, anticipate and combat the impacts of gentrification and losing the, you know, character of neighborhoods. And that, you know, that should have frankly predated us coming into a place like Echo Park and who knows the places, I don't know the places that, you know, Trencher or Ostrich Farm replaced. Um, and, you know, eventually preventing the the Subways and Chipotles and Domino's Pizzas yeah. from coming in as well. Um, it, it's, it's sad to see rooting for Pazza Gelato. I, th- I think it has a chance. I think it does have a chance, but um, I mean, it, it's it's tough to watch the evolution. Echo Park is over, bro. It's over. Not the same. Echo Park. No, look, Echo Park is forever. Let's be honest. And these <laughs> things come, in, you know, like we will see the Starbucks open there now, and then it, Echo Park won't be cool anymore, and it'll be too like you know. Santa Monica-fied, Santa Monica-fied, and 
it'll come back around one day and be cool again. But there's still things that are cool about it. For example, uh, uh, there are constantly new concepts opening up uh, at Button Mash, one, one of which we're going to check out uh, this Sunday. Another thing is like there's pop-ups happening around the, the lake all the time. Mm. It's, not, it's not all, you know, Starbucks, but certainly it's, uh, it's just change. Yeah. It's just change. Yeah, yeah. Hate change. Hate yeah. change. I hate change. I hate change. Not in my backyard. Um, well, look. Speaking of other things, you speaking of other things you hate. Uh, there's been a lot of talk of Coachella and festivals recently. Um, it's festival season. Uh, like weekend two of Coachella is happening right now, and a lot of pieces have been doing the rounds on festival food. There's, you know, very lucky reporters who have gotten their uh, tickets to Coachella paid and just have been afforded the opportunity to go from stall to stall trying out all of the different foods that are on offer. I got to say, I have been quite impressed over the years with the food lineups at Coachella. This year, also, there are quite a lot of good LA restaurants represented, including Olivia, Broad Street, Pie LA. But that said, I still think we need to ask ourselves the question, is food at festivals like Coachella a scam? Well, I have never been to a music festival somehow, shockingly, and <laughs> and, and therefore I don't know the price of these foods. Okay, well, like this. Quite high. <laughs> yeah. 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 It's similar to when like a Shake Shack or something like that opens at a sports stadium, right? Mm-hmm. And you're still getting the like product, but there's a tax on it. You're getting a slightly watered down version of the product for a higher price. Yeah, I mean, so look, in, in, in the way that airport food or stadium food might be a quote-unquote scam, sure, you'll be price gouged to some extent. But I, but beyond that, no, I don't think it's like a scam scam of food. Of course, it's really good restaurants. I'm sure they're doing a good job. They got to serve a lot of people, sure, and that there's like, you know, quality trade-offs I'm sure, that come come with that. And of course, you're far away from the actual brick and mortar of the restaurant. But no, I, I would I would be willing to bet if we were at Coachella right now, we'd be pretty happy with the food offerings. I got I, I'll certainly say my personal opinion, again, an uninformed one having never been to a music festival, I got to imagine the food is less watered down than the music. I do not <laughs> understand standing in a crowded field in the middle of the day with a stage, you know, 200 yards away being like, I love this. No, that doesn't make sense. Go to Coachella for the food. It's my take. Go Coachella the food. That's festival. because that's what it is. <laughs> I think that's just because you've never uh, had the opportunity to go to a festival where Michelle Branch was headlining. Maybe you'd feel differently then. Um, no, but I, I look. That's actually an opinion that I think is a valid one. Which is, I think, in some ways, the food at Coachella is just as much a reason to go as is the music these days Mm. like truly they do such Mm. an incredible job of curating the food offerings and even though you're paying that coachella tax and i gotta say quality wise the food isn't quite as as good as it is when you're usually getting it at the establishment of course it's really fun to be able to go from like one stall that is of a place in Malibu to another stall of a place that's in Koreatown yeah. to another stall of a place that's in South LA and do it all within like a relatively contained radius. That's, that's a pretty cool experience. 
that's a pretty cool sounding experience. And if the organizers of Coachella had their stuff together, maybe they would have invited the premier LA food pod to come, come review their options and their, and their organizing efforts. Yeah. But uh, maybe some other folks are taking advantage of such an opportunity. We'll have to see. Who knows? Who knows? We're, we're for sale, everyone. We are for sale. I will say, I think something that Coachella should do is because the annoying thing is you is you pay a ticket to get in and then you have to pay for all this food. And as I mentioned, it's more expensive. They should have a package for foodies where they maybe you pay like a hundred extra bucks on your ticket, but you get food and drink vouchers with it. Because then you get a whole crowd of people who are are gonna pay that because I tell I'm telling you, there's a bunch of people like me who are just as excited for the food at this thing as they are for the music. I, I see it as like a like a mid tier ticket option, sure. Like a like a foodie tier, the food and drink tier. You get your free tickets. You get a you go to a certain number of the of the stalls for free, plus your your music admission. Sure, yeah, I, I can I can see something like that. You're onto something. I think we might be overestimating how large the foodie population is. We're in a bit of a bubble here yeah. on our podcast, but uh, I don't hate that yeah. idea. I'd pay. The other thing I th- I've, I've been thinking about, and I've been thinking about this an inordinate amount, as you can tell, is I also don't understand why they mostly use restaurants that are from Los Angeles. And look, I mean, I do get it. I do get it like on a logistical level, easier to ship out two hours down the 10 than it is to like fly from somewhere else. But I do think it's an opportunity to bring in like, restaurants from all over now that would take it to the next level you know if, I, if i'm going to and i can get like nashville hot chicken you know or something that like is relatively uh, festival friendly i think that would just that would attract foodies too yeah i look it's an interesting point the problem you're facing is one la has so much of everything including some great nashville hot chicken, hot some chicken. Texas barbecue yeah. because la is such a, a diverse and and high tier food city you don't have to go elsewhere which by the way i'm sure would also be like pretty taxing on either the cost for organizers or of course like what's the like you need a real incentive for the restaurants to come and join from chicago or new york or whatever so i think i think coachella might not be the festival where that happens there might be others though in in smaller states where you know you try to get some big name restaurants in showcase their food do some marketing for the restaurant itself you know, do, do some great, uh, provide a great service for the attendees, but LA, I, I, I like where you're coming from, but LA and Coachella is just a co- a tough pitch because LA has everything, man. Yeah. But it's the same reason an app like gold belly exists, even mm-hmm. though we can get pizza here, even though we can get hot chicken, people are attracted to gold belly because those places that sort of like quote unquote created or have become nationally famous for those dishes hold some sort of mystique that people are willing to pay a premium for also uh it when when as soon as you said your idea i thought about gold belly i'll say that i'll say that um like i and i see where you're coming from although i am curious because we don't know how many people really do order from gold belly Right. Order, order like the out of state or like, I think you can even do it on DoorDash. Now they have like out of state options, like high, like really famous restaurants that you can order into your city a couple of days later. Are those people, the young sprightly 20 year olds who are going to Coachella? I'm not sure. Yeah. yeah prob- I mean, look, there's all kinds of people that go to Coachella. There's like absolutely loaded people. There's, 
celebrities. There's there's old folks. You know, I, I, I someone who I went to college with just took their baby there, um, their two year old baby, and it was their and it was that baby's second Coachella, by the way. So, uh, like what? you know. I know Coachella's for people of all shapes, all sizes, and all economic income. So I don't know. I, I feel like we are offering Coachella some very good ideas here. And if anyone's smart and listening from Golden Voice, you know, our DMs are open. Apparently Coachella's for all parenting styles as well, because I can't believe a baby has gone to more Coachella's than I have. That's fucking nuts, man. <laughs> I can believe it. Uh, again, no mistake ranch. Well, speaking of things that are nuts... I should say things that are mad. Are you aware that we're in the uh, third iteration of LA Tacos Taco Madness? I am now, and I have voted. Okay, this is interesting. So today we are uh, uh, in round four, I believe, which is the Sweet 16. And for those who don't know at home, um, this is like a March Madness style competition that I'm pretty sure was originally launched during March Madness, but has now slipped to being in uh, April slash May, where LA Taco basically picks, I think, 32 or 64 or something of the best taquerias around Los Angeles and pits them against each other in like a bracket style competition, um, which to which people vote. Um, the, the voters come out and they say, I want this person, this taqueria over this taqueria. They seed each taqueria, which is also interesting. You know, like Villa's Tacos is the number one seed versus Tacos Los Palomos and Winnetka, one of my favorite places, is a uh, number 15 seed. So you get all these like upsets and whatnot. But some pretty interesting things are at play here. First of all, the first two iterations have been won by Villa's Taco of Highland Park. Um, it's really one of the things that helped put Villa's on the map. And what I mean by that is they were getting great press and they're obviously like very good in their in their own right. But the sort of like social media swell that happened around voting for Villa's Tacos for LA Ta Tacos Taco Badness, I think really helped like put them on the map in terms of like showing people how, how beloved they are, like how much people are rallying for them and sort of creating this like need for people to get to Highland Park and really try these tacos. Other And, and so they're vying for a three-peat. They're in the Sweet 16. I believe they're up against LA Classic Los Cinco Puntos right now. It'll be really interesting to see how that one goes down. But the other thing that happens with this is you also get major upsets, right? You get like juggernauts that are quickly eliminated because maybe their followers just aren't as like, you know, gung-ho about going out and trying to trying to vote for them so my question for you Saul is something like this which is a popular vote just a popularity contest and if so does that mean we care more or less because there's an argument to be made both ways if you ask me so it's it so it is of course a popularity contest but what makes it interesting is that I think uh, an outlet like uh, like LA Taco putting this out helps us like it, essentially it's, it's a survey right and mm -hmm. like the people who are you know writing at LA Taco writing at LA LA Times LA Eater may not know what the what the ground is feeling around something like a great taco spot so what this what this competition allows is for some popular options that may not have hit the radar yet like vs tacos back in the day to percolate up and right now there's a 
there's a 13 versus 10 seed matchup between Takonazo and Avenue 26. I'm guessing mm-hmm. Takonazo, for me personally, I'm not familiar with Takonazo. We've had Avenue 26 before. I'm not familiar. And like 13 seed in a 64 seed taco countdown percolating up, that's really interesting and, and, and cool to see. Yeah. So I, I think I think it's significant that way. What it made me think, though, also is, is going back to our very first episode of this podcast and thinking about food awards. And we were talking about like, you know, what it means for a certain number of critics or a certain number of outlets to have so much sway over the industry. What if someone like an eater or infatuation did like a, 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 a an awards list, but in the style of like the NBA all-stars, right? Who are chosen mm-hmm. based on both fan vote by some percentage, plus like media slash quote unquote reviewer vote, plus vote like coaches vote right there's like some combination of those which indicate who becomes an all-star i think fans have like you know starting lineup you know uh uh sway and so on and so forth but like what if there's a food countdown in a specific city where it was like okay we're gonna survey the population that counts for 25 percent of the vote or 33 percent of the vote then we're gonna survey reviewers or gather and and, and you know accumulate their takes 33 percent of the vote and then restaurant owners other chefs and restaurateurs they vote that's 33, 33%. I would be really curious to see in like LA, Seattle, New York, and so on, what restaurants percolate up with that sort of dynamic and that sort of share and of review. Because I think it could look a lot different from like, you know, Eater Top List, James Beard, and so on. It, it could be a really compelling sort of way to gauge what is really the hottest and best restaurant in the city. I really like that. I think that there's a case to be made that something like, LA's taco, like the taco madness has a very unique value in exactly for the reasons you were saying, like in terms of like elevating places that maybe don't have the biggest shine right now, but that there's like a loyal following of, and it it gives them a platform, right? Um, In a way that traditional awards do not, because those traditional awards always tend to start from places that already are receiving some sort of accolades, right? Um, so I think combining the two is a really interesting way to sort of solve for that. Um, and I love the inclusion of people in the industry. I remember, you know, I've, I've, having spoken with folks who have thought a lot about how the James Beard Awards are awarded, you know, one criticism that's often levied against something like the James Beard Awards is that it's always like from the outside in. It's not a lot of like people who are in it or, or that's at least some of the feeling, right? The feeling is that like, it's not really representative of perhaps how the actual industry itself feels. Mm-hmm. It's people who watch the industry telling the industry, hey, here's who deserves the awards. Mm-hmm. It's interesting to include their votes in it as well. So this is like, you know, creating like the, the ultimate tripod of like how an award should be given. So I'm into that. No, I fully agree. I think it's like a really interesting, like the athletic, for example, uh, does a, a blind survey of NBA players each year and how they feel on some interesting questions. Like, you know, who's the coach you'd most want to play for, or who's the mm-hmm. like most intimidating player in the league. And, you know, to build on this idea, which I think is a, by the way, brilliant one. And it's definitely going to get stolen of doing some food award <laughs> show that combines these three elements. It would also be interesting if someone is not doing this already, I should say, to like survey, you know, I don't know, 
survey all the James Beard Award nominees and semifinalists or shit, survey as many restaurateurs and chefs will participate in a particular jurisdiction. Yeah. Like, hey, who do you think is the best out there? Who do you think is like doing the most innovative stuff out there? Because I bet those folks who are doing the work, the chefs and the cooks and, and whoever are doing the work in the industry, you know, know some stuff that we don't. And it'd be a really cool mm -hmm. thing to follow. And, and I'd be super down to like, Go check out the top three most innovative restaurants as voted on by the chefs of LA. I bet that's, I bet that's yeah. pretty cool. The LA chef awards. That would be dope. I would Yo. love, I would love that. Yo. So who, who do you think, uh, who do you got for taco madness? Via's tacos is so strong, man. I, I was actually looking at the results right now in front of me and uh, they're, they're fucking crushing yet again. It'd be really interesting to see an upset. Notice, I mean, I love Vias. We had Vias together, and I love them. But I, I, I would be curious to see if anyone takes the lead. But right now, they, it, it just seems like they're running away with it. They are against actually Tacos Ibiria La Unica, and up seventy six to twenty four percent, like crushing. And yeah, that's like a really I, strong I think, contender. I think Tacos Ibiria La Unica is a little overrated, personally. So Ooh, I'm not entirely. Uh, I, I'm, I'm not entirely surprised by that. Look, I think the problem is there's a lot of BDI in Los Angeles. So the sure. sort of like BDI vote is split. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like you're going to have people who are fans of other BDI places who will never vote for La Unica. Um, so to me, that's not entirely surprising. I'm really interested to see what happens when Via's Tacos comes up against another sort of like darling. And yeah. it seems like Taco Nazo could yeah. be making a run here. I'm looking like at they, based on the yep. Based on the amount of votes they've gotten in each round, it seems like they've got a groundswell. Um, and I'm just interested to see what happens when, when they're, they're pitted head to head, if it happens. I mean, Taco Nazo's already knocked off the number one seed in Sonora Town, which I think is significant. Sonora Town is popular. It's in downtown LA. A lot of young yuppies probably reading LA Taco are voting. And the fact that Taco Nazo knocked it off is, is significant. They're definitely the Cinderella story of uh, of this year's LA Taco Madness. That's nuts because Sonora Town made it to the final last year. And I want to say the year before as well, definitely mm. last year, they were in the final. So for them to be knocked off by like newcomer Nazo, that's that's news, man. That's I'm surprised we didn't see this on CNN personally. <laughs> well... I uh, will be following this with attention, and I may even try to integrate some of these taco places into our food crawl this weekend, depending on uh, how many tums we've both consumed at any given point. But look, I want to stay on the topic of awards because there's another award that came down this week um, that I found particularly interesting, and that is the World's Best uh, Female Chef Award 2023 from the World's 50 Best was awarded to Elena Regadas of Rosetta in Mexico City. Now, it's not a Los Angeles person that won this, but we're going to cover it anyways because let's face it, Mexico City is is our is our sister city here, man. It's, we, we we love it. Um, it it's got it's got everything. Um, it's it's the best food city in the world except for Los Angeles, so it makes sense to talk about it. Um, the really interesting thing here is yes, Rosetta is an incredible restaurant. Panaderia Rosetta is an incredible bakery. Absolutely love it. But I saw quite a bit of social media chatter coming on um, about the fact that some people believe that we should not be celebrating Chef Regadas 
because she has been accused or her restaurant, I should say, has been accused of things like wage theft, labor disputes, et cetera, et cetera. Now, this struck me as particularly interesting because on its face, you hear of something like that and you're like, yeah, of course that person should be out of the running for this kind of an award. However, I did a little bit more digging and it seems like in general, wage theft is just a massive issue for restaurant workers, like regardless of the restaurant group. It's very easy systemically for restaurant groups to engage in these practices, sometimes wittingly and sometimes just because that's the way things have been done in the industry forever. I mean, I saw a report that said something like U.S. workers lose as much as $50 billion a year due to wage theft, which is a massive amount. So this is clearly bigger than Rosetta. It's clearly bigger than Elena Regatas. But I'm curious for you what you think. Should something like this eliminate her from being considered for such an award or should we just not be celebrating it as loud? No, it should eliminate her. And, you know, Rosetta was the very first restaurant uh, I ate at Mexico City. You made the reservation our very first night there in town. An amazing experience for me. Uh, and like you said, love love the whole neighborhood, love the love the Rosetta complex. But wage theft is a legitimate problem uh, in the restaurant industry. It's a, it's a really it's a really bad practice. And by rewarding restaurateurs who engage in it, I think it normalizes it and you know, obviously re- rewards that behavior. And I don't think we should I don't think we should do that. Um, so I, I think that like a ethical consideration for the restaurants, like restaurateur, whatever it may be, should and must be uh, part and parcel with selection here. Um, and, and, and because we don't, I mean, look, chef, like pe- people in any industry, but I, I think chefs will among them are competitive, are ambitious, are cutthroat, and who we reward in the industry send this, sends a signal for other up and comers. Who think like, hey, mm. this is how I get it done. So I, yeah, no, I, I, again, Rosetta, amazing, amazing food. Um, Elena has done amazing stuff and and certainly deserves the award from a from a talent and execution perspective. But I don't think we need to be celebrating places that practice business in a way that is bad for people. We don't need to. There are others who the other, there are others who don't and who are who are worthy. I think there are a couple bigger problems here, in my opinion. Mm. One is that she's clearly appropriating Italian food, which is a problem. Um, joking, of course. Do the LA Taco Countdown when he's from It's true, it's true. Uh, that was, point. Yeah, yeah, we gotta, or, you know, we gotta look, look out for that Italian appropriation. We're all worried about it. it if you see something, say something, is what I say. <laughs> um, but secondly, and on a more serious note, I think that there's a problem with awarding individual chefs to begin hmm. with. And I like this take. We've seen yeah. we've seen this happen before. Like um, we, we've seen it. We've seen sort of the glorification of like the the like you know crazy genius chef whose bad behavior is excused uh, because they are doing such amazing things, quote unquote, in the kitchen. Their art is just a, a beyond reproach. And while I think we've sort of shed like that, I don't think we're excusing that kind of behavior anymore. We're still glorifying individual chefs. And I've seen a movement that I really love from some restaurants where on their menus, 
they almost do like the credits at the end of a movie where they show like all of the people who put in work to make that night at the restaurant as magical as it was, you know, the saucier, the dishwasher, the busboy, the, you know, all of it. And to me, that is truly what we should be rewarding here. Like rewarding one restaurant tour. It just seems so, it just seems like wrong side of history territory. Mm -hmm. Yeah, no, no. I like that take a lot. It's, it's what you're, what you're, what you really want to reward is the operation, the culture, the quote unquote franchise, right? So to speak, uh, behind the restaurant, because it's never just one person. Yes, of course, there are, you know, genius chefs out there. No, no argument. There are people doing great, great food, but the full execution of a, of a great dinner is so much more than one person. So, so much more. And I do think the consideration of the full operation, so to speak, as you're saying, would preclude practices like wage theft and, and, and other harmful yeah. practices, sexual harassment, whatever it may be. You go, no, well, we're rewarding. It's like, yo, you want to, you want to reward the mid San, mid 2000 San Antonio Spurs, not the one-off super team, whatever it may be. Right. You want to, you want to be yeah. like, yo, this, this is true. Greatness is like longevity, culture, and, and recognizing everyone who contributed to great work, because especially at the highest levels at the, at the world's 50 best at the Michelin three star, everyone plays a role. No one, no one can slack. Yeah. So no, I, I like that take, man. I like that take. That's, and look, this is, that's actually really a really good point. The sports factor, because in sports, we don't get an opportunity to do this, right? Mm-hmm. Because ultimately, like, even if you have shitty practices as an organization, like Manchester City, right? Like their their financial uh, practices are obviously questionable. The way they've gotten their money are questionable. But we don't really get to award other teams because if they're if they've been able to assemble the best team, they're just going to win the most matches and win the league. But this isn't that kind of thing with restaurants. We actually do have an opportunity to look at all of their practices, take them all into consideration. So, you know, you swayed me on this. Initially, I was like, look, we shouldn't we shouldn't uh, penalize Elena for what's really an industry problem. But you're right. I mean, if there are people that are doing this right and we're trying to send a signal to up-and-comers and people who are doing it, there's absolutely no reason to take all these things into consideration. So kudos to you on swaying me, a, a famously unswayable man. I'm glad to be your Jiminy Cricket, bro. I'm your moral compass. <laughs> well, um, you also swayed me into adding the last thing on our agenda of this section uh, to the agenda, and that's something called Blackbird. Um, so Blackbird is is a new restaurant NFT platform, which was st- started by the founder of Resi. I think he also had a hand in starting Eater, actually. Yeah. Um, I didn't even want to talk about this because this sounded like a combination of bad ideas. It's, it sounded like basically punch cards meets Foursquare meets movie pass. Um, it's basically like, will you break down what, what this is and why you think there's an argument for this? Yeah, so I'm going to take a step back. And first of all, shout out to Isa, who put restaurant NFTs really on my radar because my reaction to a headline like this initially would have been exactly like yours. And I'm not saying your reaction is incorrect, specifically to the idea of Blackbird which seems to be some kind of NFT loyalty program sort of thing where people can buy in and get rewards for where they, they, they visit a restaurant. And that's based on a cursory reading of this Eater article. But 
Yeah, like you, the way I understand it works is you, you the way I understand you work it works is you you download it on your phone or you, or you buy the NFT or something of the restaurant and then every time you're at the restaurant you tap it on a sticker or something and each time you go you look through like more points um, which gets you access to exclusive offers like premier reservations like off the menu dishes things that they say are reserved only for friends and family mm-hmm. yeah which look as a here's the general thing right nfts initially and as of today and continually as a concept scoff at right you're bored ape shit stupid nonsense and the question is here but but really it's like okay well here's this technology that allows like uh clear confirmed ownership over particular anything sort of like a table at a restaurant for example and we can confirm that using this like using this digital blockchain and, and always make sure that there's clear ownership over time the question is essentially is there utilization for that in in a more kind of productive and real way than owning a stupid little gif right and when i had a conversation with so i so i uh, had dinner with eyes in seattle a couple I think it might be months ago now. And, you know, I, I raised restaurant and NFTs as something to scoff at. And she being a more enlightened and, uh, you know, intellectual. Smarter. Person, smarter, yeah, just fundamentally smarter person than I was like, well, no, here, look. And she and she laid out a couple of use cases. Blackbird was, by the way, this Blackbird loyalty program was not one of the use cases she discussed. But I think it's an interesting one, right? Uh, as long as, and here's the key, there is value going back to the restaurant. So the, the case study Isa used was, hey, so for example, if, if a restaurant like uh, the French Laundry, but it could be a bestia, sold a, a table reservation, a standing table as an NFT, we buy it, right? We pay XX for a standing reservation at said table at bestia. They get paid whatever the value is, which should be quite a lot for that table in perpetuity. And if we are not using the table and we sell it on, my understanding, my, my, my basic novice understanding is that there's a function where dollars can go back to the restaurant for that selling on. So for example, if you make a reservation on Eater and then you bail, the restaurant's kind of fucked. They held the table yeah. for someone who never showed up and they're done. If it's a quote unquote NFT that someone has one, first of all, paid for already and then sold on or passed on to someone else, they've gotten, first of all, the, the upfront payment for that table, whatever the value may be, and can continue to get uh, value as this NFT is quote unquote sold down the line. And there are various other value things that come with it. Tom Colicchio has actually experimented with restaurant NFTs a little bit. He went down the sort of GIF road with something called uh, like Shifty, uh, which looked a little silly. But my point here in general, and we don't have to go too deep on this, is that I keep an, keep an eye on this idea of quote unquote NFTs or confirmed ownership in the restaurant space. I think there will be some kind of role to play for res- in, in, where restaurants can gather value from the technology. Maybe I, I remain a heavy skeptic, but I saw this headline and I was like, I think a lot of people are going to laugh at this, but I don't think it's nothing. I don't think it's nothing. I think the only value it has right now is that it eliminates the need to have a bunch of annoying physical punch cards in your wallet that take up space and you're never going to use again. And that well, is the only value to the consumer. Well, because it isn't the only value because, as you said, the way the program works is that you can build up sort of credit over time to become a friend and family level member at a restaurant, which I don't know. Can you just do that organically? Maybe if you have a really good relationship, no. but otherwise, I don't know. 
that has a, that has a expiration stamp on it, and here's why: when everybody starts doing this, sure, and everybody is doing these quote unquote exclusive offers, they're no longer exclusive; they're just the fucking offer, and well, then it loses it and it loses its appeal. Although where where I, where I would pause there is part of the value or, or or for the way the market for an NFT like this would work is not everyone can access it, which is kind of shitty in its own way. And, and like, you know, I have, I have my qualms about it, but there were, there were the, I, I believe there would only be a certain number of, for example, slots sold on, on, on an app like Blackbird to enter. So it could not be everyone. It would only be the people who were so like, buying yeah. in, which is like, look, this means it's immediately like an elitist exclusive 1% activity, but and 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 I like you know whatever we'll we'll, we'll side eye at that, but as long as it's bringing value back to the restaurant, right? I I I won't dismiss it out of hand. Is all I'll say. Is it? Could you think of this like non-voting shareholders? Uh, I I I don't know if I would go quite that far. It's it. Uh, uh, I, I'm not sure. I'm not sure. I'm not sure I would go that far because that suggests that the participants have some ability to dictate decisions by the restaurant. Which I mean, as of now, the restaurant could have the restaurant could eventually offer, right? I mean, they they could say, hey, if you are part of our loyalty program and hit this level via participating as one of these NFT slots, then you get some level of essentially whatever non-voting or yeah. whatever, like some some level of influence here. But they, it would be up to the restaurant to decide essentially what what they're offering is to those who participate. Um, yeah. I don't think it's yeah. nothing. That's I'm, all I'll say. The point about value to the restaurant is a good one. And I do see the value in, you know, if you have a table that's going to cancel, you know, the restaurant is totally SOL. But if the diner has the ability to sell that on, that creates an incentive on both sides. I think there's value there. I'll be really interested to see how this continues. I do not have high hopes for it, but then again, I don't have high hopes for technology in general. <laughs> um, well, on that rosy note, we're going to take a quick break. When we come back, we're going to do a top chef recap. I have been dreading this part of the show because it's time to give you all a recap of where things stand, not only on Top Chef the show, but more importantly on mine and Father Saul's Fantasy Top Chef Showdown. Um, look, I would like to just turn my camera off, curl into the field position and not talk, but uh, I'll remain on the line. But Father Saul, why don't you tell us where things stand? <laughs> the score in Top Chef Fantasy is Team Saul, 150 points. Team Luca, 68 points. I encourage all, all of our listeners to go back and listen to the Top Chef draft and how uh, cocky and confident our friend Luca here was feeling about his uh, draft selection process, which was dumb in the moment and even dumber being played out. But I will say, I will say to be fair, when we had the when we when we finished the draft, I was like, you know what? I feel like I had some good picks here, but uh, you know, overall even draft, especially after the first episode. I, I feel like the Top Chef judges, you must have done something to insult them, man, because even when your contestants, like Sarah Bradley in this week's episode, really crushes it and is getting some narrative shine yeah. in the episode. They're just like, nope, doesn't matter. Not top three. Whatever. We don't care. It's almost like personally selected to shaft you, bro. So my question is, uh, how do you insult Padma Lakshmi? What did you do wrong here? 
we unfortunately uh, don't have the rating available to us for me to tell that story. But I, I, I agree. It feels personal. Like every single week, even if my chefs do something good, they are never in the top three. And the bottom three is almost exclusively my chefs. I, it genuinely feels like I am somehow cursed because I maintain, yes, my drafting strategy for this was stupid. I basically did it. I basically did it entirely based on vibes. But to be fair to me, what else did we have to go on? You know, I wasn't going to sit there and watch Top Chef Germany and Top Chef Spain and Top Chef Mexico. I have a job. I have a podcast. I'm eating 100 sandwiches in 365 days, okay? I can't sit around and, like, you know, watch old seasons of Top Chef from different countries. I literally just had a bio and and a thought process. And my thought process is which of these chefs would make the best narrative? Because at the end of the end of the day, this is TV, you know? This is this is a story. So that's what I went with. And and I stand by it because I could still come back. But um I I, I just I do think so much of it comes down to luck. Like ultimately this week, you would agree. I had two chefs at least that could have been in the conversation for top three. I had, well, maybe I only had one. Did I only have Sarah? I, I think only Sarah, bro. Yeah, pretty much. <laughs> yeah, yeah, fair enough. Um, but she somehow was just completely omitted. They, it's like they didn't even think about her for top three. It's like they have a filter on. That's like if 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 the chef is on Lucas' team, they're not getting top three. I have a lot to say in response to this. First of all, I do think you're falling prey to, uh, frankly, Ali's just straight handsomeness. Ali this week had like an. I actually, I actually went back and watched. Ali had an okay dish. She was one of the first to serve, and they were like, "Oh, hey, really good." Sarah came up, and they were like, "Oh my god, incredible! Looks beautiful, tastes beautiful, story's great." And yet, Ali wins the week, and I think it's because he's just like too damn hot. I think they just like can't so help it, but to do it now. To go to some of your other points, you could say, you know, you're too busy. You could say it's all luck. Look, some people have a natural eye for food talent. Others don't. And you can live with that. You can sit with it. You can let it wash over you because I think this might be the purest just beat down victory I have ever achieved over you. My guys are coming through strong. Amar Santana, who, you know, still every week I'm like, I have no idea where this guy's going to go. And he keeps bothering Uli, my handsome boy. And I'm like, back off, bro. Let him, let him do his work. Yeah. Stop. And he's, he's let him cook. Let him literally, let him literally cook. Amar is, I think the top, one of the top three highest vote getters of the season. Actually, he's number four, right behind Buddha. My number one overall pick. <clears throat> it, it's, it's, it's a really, now to take a step back, Fancy Top Chef, you're getting beat down. You are technically not dead because if Sarah were to say run the table and win and I get some eliminations, which remember, every elimination is minus five. It closes the gap. If yeah. Sarah goes oh. on a run. Oh, I know. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And and for, and for context, Luca has not had a contestant who has won the week the entire season. Every single week have you have not. Every single week we are wow. seven weeks in. You have no winners. It's real trash, bro. Like even like statistically, yeah. that just shouldn't happen. No, no, no. You're, this is like this is as if you you know how people pick like the perfect bracket in March Madness. This is like if you pick the perfectly incorrect bracket somehow. Like what a <laughs> opportunity. Um, I mean, honestly, you you'd think I'm tanking for a better draft pick next year. 
I mean, we'll give it to you, man. I'll give you the first two next year. I'll spot you. I, I'm feeling cocky right now. Yeah. Now, uh, yeah. I, 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 I do think you you have had some huge strokes of luck. Like the fact that Amar is performing to the level he is, nobody saw this coming. Oh, I didn't see it. Coming. Not even Amar. Not even Amar um, saw this coming. Amar is shocked by how he's doing. I, I have to imagine. And uh, yeah, the funniest thing. Not only are you almost being like specifically targeted by the judges, but the editors are like toying with you, bro. Editors, because they really ed- editors, editors, the, editors are fucking with me, man. Because every week, every week, and and look, credit to them because they make it a really compelling show. But they seem to tee it up where you're like, oh, I know who's getting eliminated, or I know who's winning. And you know, some, I mean, a couple yeah. times it's been one of your chefs who's not getting eliminated or is winning. And they've really like teed it up the whole episode, and they like right before the the, the decision is told, it's like okay, I know what's gonna happen. Literally, this happened yesterday, where I was like, oh, yeah. I know exactly who's going home. Bait and switch. I'm like, oh shit, Bait is sw- going home. I did not see that coming. Yeah, no, it's true. I mean, it was gonna be one of mine regardless. We just <laughs> thought we had gotten rid of Victoire finally. Yeah, that's right. That's um, right. <laughs> uh, I mean, truthfully, like I I don't know. How I picked such a horrific team, but I also think are the chefs worse this season somehow? No, like are no. are they always this bad? Dude, no, your chefs are bad. This is the strongest Top Chef season maybe ever in competition with Top Chef Portland, I think. But I do think this is the strongest top to bottom, probably. I think Top Chef Portland gives us no. I don't think so. I don't think so. So sometimes in a lot of seasons, you always have those episodes where like. Tom and Padma and and Gail sit around a table and are like, oh, I can't believe we're going to have to eliminate somebody this week. Yeah. Uh, all the dishes have been immaculate. They've all been so good. And then they go off and eliminate somebody anyways because they have to. But this season, it feels like every single week right, there is playing. some enormous blunder yeah. by someone who is most likely on my team. Yeah. And it, <laughs> like so overall, it feels like the quality is – is lower. I, 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 it's definitely not lower. Like this quality, the quality of this season is higher than last season in Houston. I do think Top Chef Portland season eighteen is a standout in part because COVID meant that they were able to draw a lot more executive chefs who had sadly lost their restaurants, right, and had frankly the free time and incentive to get on Top Chef. I remember Top Chef Portland in, partic- in particular, maybe Top Chef All Stars LA as well, being two seasons where they were like, "Damn, this is really hard." They, I think this week of uh, Top Chef season 20 was the first one where they were like, all the food was really good. They were like, oh, they, 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 they pointed out this week in particular, like, this is a strong kind of top to bottom. Now, they might have been exaggerating because I do think both Victoire and Dale were kind of pretty weak. I, I think, though, from maybe here on or a week or two on, the, the finalists for this season are going to be maybe the, the strongest top end. Ali Charbel. Fuda, Nicole, Sarah Bradley, even Gabri, man. Gabri's been kind of killing it the last couple of weeks. Like, I think the top end, anything can happen. And I honestly, God, don't know who's ultimately going to win. Ali has the most overall points for our system this season, but, and he's just so damn beautiful. They might just not even notice the food they're eating and just like stare into his eyes. But <laughs> I, I, I don't know who comes out on top here necessarily. Well, gun to the head, you have to pick somebody. Who do you pick? I'm going to quote my favorite podcaster, Chris Ryan, and say, you got to treat Buddha like the mid-offs first a little bit. I think I think Buddha is the choice until he drops it. Now, he's been a little wobbly, to be clear. 
Like he's been a little off. But I think I this, think he's a choice until he's until proven differently. This mold fetish yeah. is getting out of hand. But about one that brought with him to London one thousand dollars worth of molds. What the hell? What the hell is that? I mean, I I'm so curious of all the shapes he has. So far, he's pulled out a banana. He's pulled out a skull. What else has he pulled out? I think he's on a, has he done a hand? I feel like he's on a hand or something before. A hand? Yeah. Yes. It was this episode. In this episode, he did the skull in the quick fire and the hand right. in the in the in the elimination <laughs> challenge. Dude, this is too many, getting out of hand. Way literally. Out of hand. It's kind of out of nowhere. What was he cuz also let's also recognize like doing a mole is not like is it, it does not equate doing a creative thing. I'm sure it does help with presentation, but like if you just stick a food in a mold, you're not like being creative. You're just literally doing no. paint by the numbers, doing a mold. A thousand dollars, a thousand dollars worth of mold. It's a full sexual kink. It yeah. can't. It can't be anything else. Like he has. He's gonna yeah. do four molds this season, and he's gonna sleep with the other fucking seven <laughs> or however many he brought. Look, man, it's a long, long shooting schedule. <laughs> Nights can get lonely. So. <laughs> Whatever gets you through it, dude. Okay, so unbi- unbiased pick, who crashes out next? Uh, it's got to be Bikpar. It's got to be I mean, her, her, it, it, or uh, she, she's in the realm of Sylvia. And and by the way, I got to say, to your to your talent question, I think something that's, I would almost compare this versus a Top Chef America season to like the World Cup versus the Champions League, mm. right? Because, because they're doing yeah. an international competition. Look, I don't know the talent pool at Top Chef Portland, but Sylvia was at the top of it. Right and, and, and yeah, but that's 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 not good. Here's why: like in the World Cup, that's a great thing because there are powerhouse countries when it comes to soccer. Yeah. They have more money and whatnot. Yeah. That makes sense yeah. that you're going to bring in a lot of countries that are much more under resourced. But what you're basically saying is that America is the best culinary oh, country. No, I'm not because guess who are the top two performing chefs? Top. Top Chef Middle East North Africa winners, man. Maybe we got to be watching that show a bit because Ali and Charbel yeah. are crushing, yeah. man. So, but I, I, of course, I, I would have maybe assumed that Top Chef America, which is also the, the longest running version of the show and therefore maybe has the most prestige, blah, 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 would have been top. But I, I think it's interesting to see where it's like, look, Poland just has a Robert Lewandowski and no one else. And the talent pool is not shaped by, uh, you know, the, the whatever chef you want in the world. It's specifically by top chef winners or runners up in specific countries, which kind of naturally lowers it, like like narrows the talent pool, not lowers it, narrows it. Um, why do they do top chef por- Poland, by the way? That's such a weird idea. Sylvia, <laughs> Sylvia wishes, Sylvia wishes she was Lewandowski. Honestly, <laughs> yeah, no, I, I, recognize I mean, that. yeah, yeah, that is fair. That is fair. Uh, no, no, it's she's uh, she's barely she's barely Maddie Cash. <laughs> So her, she has the most, uh, I'll say, eclectic palette of anyone I've seen on Top Chef. Some of the decisions are just insane. Um, but, but I mean, it's not, it's not eclectic. It's all potatoes. It's just <laughs> how can I make a potato dessert, potato soup, uh, potato for dinner, potato for breakfast. Her, her <laughs> lemon curd meat pastry muffin thing. What in the world? Yeah. Her, by the way, I don't know if you watched the Last Chance Kitchen. She made a sandwich with oh my god i'm gonna forget crab it was crab with like a uh oh my god what's it called the sauce on an eggs benedict a hollandaise i think it was and 
if Dude. she also poured the hollandaise, the sandwich, poured the hollandaise over the sandwich, and oh my god, the best part, she put the sandwich in a brioche bun, but for I don't even know what reason, flipped the brioche bun upside down. So the crust of the brioche, like the hard crust, was facing downwards into the sandwich, and the cut part was facing up. And it was like, <laughs> what are we looking at? <laughs> they, literally, Tom and Tom Pat were like, make a sandwich. And they both, but Tom didn't do a great job either. They both were like, the mo- like I, I, it was the funniest, weirdest thing I've ever seen. Do you think she just doesn't know, she just doesn't know how bread works? It's do they have bread in Poland? Should we double check? I'm not entirely sure. I don't know. I don't know. Yeah, yeah. Baked potato. All right. Well, I feel like we covered we've covered all of the like England London bases mm-hmm. this season. It feels like we've done football. They've went to Tottenham Hotspur Stadium. They did the pub yeah. crawl. They did like the Queen shit by going to the Queen's grocer. Yeah. Um, they did like little the uh, picnic and tea sandwiches. Yeah. What are we missing? What kind of challenges are, do we need to see? Well, it's a good question. What I hope to see, and, and the thing about London they haven't touched yet, is that as we discussed kind of heading into the season, English food is gross. But <laughs> but London has some of the best non best international food in the world, right? I got to see me some Pakistan Indian challenge here. I would love that. Or, or, or yes. other restaurants, like a takeout challenge almost. It was funny. I was listening to Sarah Bradley on a podcast, and you know they were, and, and, the, and the hosts asked, you know, what she thought of the food in England. And she was like, she basically was like, I don't know about English food, but some of the best Indian food she's ever had. And I would love for them yeah. to recognize that, recognize the, the South Asian immigrant community and make them kind of work in that direction. We just had Gugun uh, on from, uh, as a guest judge. Really, really amazing episode, I got to say, by the way. Really creative challenges. Really, yeah. really cool, uh, cool kind of pieces of work uh, that that the chefs put forward. So the season itself, in terms of like a top chef design, high class. For London and for England, what I got to see is uh, some diversity. Some diversity now. We've covered the England. Bases. Yeah, I think that's it's a great point. I do think that that's one of like the things that England offers. I do think. How long till we get a Yotam Otolengi uh, cameo? He's like a big London guy, isn't he? I have literally no idea what you just said. <laughs> oh my god. Otolengi? You know what Otolengi is? I do not. I do not. Hey, look. This, oh is the, this is the London food pod, man. I'm just a guy who lives in Seattle yeah, talking about Los Angeles. Don't ask me about London. <laughs> <laughs> We're just going to have to have a corner called like Illiterate Corner <laughs> with Cousin Saul. <laughs> All right, bro. Well, as illiterate in food as you may be, you are crushing the Top Chef game. So congratulations to you. But it ain't over till it's over. And we will continue to give our listeners updates. I, I'm looking forward to it. And it, it, look, it is a little scary. This could be like a, you know, Warriors down 3-1 or rather up 3-1 situation comeback. It could be a Falcons up on the Patriots 28-3 situation. It's not over, but it's kind of pretty close to over. So we'll, 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 look, to see, we'll look to close it out. It's close. Well, uh, prepare yourself for our food crawl, uh, and uh, we'll be telling the listeners all about it next week. Thumbs at the ready. Shout out, Isa.
Thanks for listening to another episode of the LA Food Podcast. If you like what you heard, go to wherever you listen to podcasts. Give us a rating, a review, subscribe if you should be so inclined. If you're looking for me, you can find me at the LA Countdown on TikTok and Instagram. That's at T-H-E-L-A-C-O-U-N-T-D-O-W-N.